0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. Dr Amel Karboul is an author, politician and business leader. She was the first woman in history to be Tunisia's Minister of Tourism and was a leading member of the government that led the country's transition to democracy after the Arab Spring. Now, as CEO of the Education Outcomes Fund, she is using her skills to build an innovative new approach to making sure every child gets a great education. Amel is also an expert in mindfulness and how to use it to improve leadership practice. Welcome to the podcast, Amel.
0: Thank you, Julia, for inviting
1: me. I'm very excited. (laughs) It's great to have you here. Now, I'm going to take you right back to the beginning, right back to your childhood. You've credited your feminist upbringing as the catalyst that set you on your career path. Can you tell us about that? What was childhood like?
0: You know, my mother and my grandmothers were quite great role models. So my grandmother was, I think, in 1930, the first woman who drove a car on the island of Jabba. So kind of she was well known. (laughs) And my mother had a quite a busy career. And in an interesting way, when I grew up, like as a child, my mom's schedule was much busier than my dad's. And so my dad took quite a lot of childcare, let's say, uh, responsibilities, his became much, much busier when I was a teenager. So kind of I saw my parents having kind of that dual career. And sharing, but I grew up definitely also in a society that treated boys and girls massively differently, but had the chance come to be a bit of an observer of that because I think I grew up in a quite liberal family
1: and When would have been the first time that you thought to yourself, hmm, boys and girls do get treated differently? Do you remember a moment as a young girl where you thought that
0: probably at birth uh, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> There is a story that I've been told later that so my dad had my sister and my aunt, my dad's sister had two girls. And so on the 25th of April, two girls were born. So my aunt had a third girl and my dad had a second girl. And my grandmother apparently fell completely apart crying and being completely devastated because she would have loved my dad to have a boy. So I hope you're somewhere and you're very proud of me and you regret that crying. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I've was told was this story later, but yeah, I saw very early that, you know, boys had much more freedom to roam around and to do things, and girls were much more constrained. And I was kind of in the middle, and that actually is something that continues in my life. You know, I had much more freedom than most go- girls, but not as much as most boys, and was kind of third culture kid, maybe kind of in the middle, but gave me the ability to, yeah, observe those differences. I always had a logical mind, and it never made sense to me
1: that's because it doesn't make sense.
0: (laughs) It doesn't make sense. Now,
1: your family has interconnections with politics through your father and your grandfather. So in some ways, you grew up seeing behind the scenes of what it was like to talk about politics, to think about politics. Did that inspire you to get involved yourself?
0: Actually, I swore to myself, I would never go into politics for two reasons. One, I never felt really free because my father was such a public person. My grandfather was quite a public person from my mother's side. And so I always felt everything I said was quite observed. I mean, I grew up in a dictatorship. Let's not forget that. I felt I could never be me. I was always like the daughter of and whatever opinion I had was very influenced. Like I had to be careful what to say because it could have repercussions on my family. But on the other side, I was very influenced. We had a lot of opposition leaders coming to our house and, you know, lots and lots like probably weekly conversations about how we could change the system and how we can have more democracy. And so that type of dialogue and I could be part of it all the time and so that probably influenced me more than I thought yeah I never say never huh
1: (laughs) and for people who don't know much about your beautiful country can you explain that period to us what it was like where you were living what the culture was Mm -hmm. like and the sort of political environment
0: Tunisia was obviously a French colony until 1956 when it became independent and one of the big leaders of independence is Habib Bourguiba who is seen as quite one of the big leaders in Africa. He put 25% of Tunisia's budget on education from day one. And, and people were complaining, what about you know infrastructures and water and streets? And he's like, the best infrastructure are educated minds. And so it was very forthcoming. This is like 1957 or so. He also banned polygamy. He, he was leading new laws, family laws. So Tunisia until today, actually, with that legacy, has the most modern, I would say, family laws in the whole of Arab world. And Tunisian women had the right to vote before Swiss women had the right to vote and things like that. So... That was a a really positive phase. But at the end of his tenure, for me, I think he made the mistake never to build really strong other leadership. And so there was kind of a very typical Tunisian, because very peaceful people, a bloodless coup type of thing. So where he was declared not able to lead anymore. And so the minister of interior at that time, Ben Ali, took power in 1987 And my father was quite involved in that. But then Ben Ali kind of transformed into a massive dictator. And also his family grabbed the whole economy of the country and made it a massively kind of corrupt autocratic regime until basically end of 2010. And we'll come to
1: 2010. But before we get there, following, obviously, your childhood, which we've been discussing, you went on to university. And in the 1990s, you were at university in Germany, studying for a master's degree in mechanical engineering. Now, even today, women are significantly underrepresented in engineering. So what was that experience like? I mean, you're in a different country, not your own. You're in a male-dominated space. Can you tell about that?
0: Yeah, it was a massive surprise. Honestly, I mean, we didn't have internet at that time. So when I went to study in Germany, I thought this is a Western country. This is going to be a much more modern country. I think at that time in Tunisia, like 35% of engineering students were women. I loved math and physics and, and was really aiming to become an engineer. And when I entered the first, I remember the first course, which is like math one for engineers, 500 people in Karlsruhe. So this is like the MIT of Germany, three women. Well, less than 1%. I thought I was in the wrong thing. I was like, oh, is this like a university male kind of club meeting or something? And they're like, no, no, this is math one for mechanical engineers. And I was like, where are the women? (laughs) (laughs) I really like, I remember. And they were like, there are two and you're a third. And so I was like completely shocked. Honestly, I went back home. I remember called my dad, pick up the phone. I was like, I think women don't study in Germany. You know, it was for me like a massive shock. This was like 1990, I think. And he's like, okay, calm down, go ahead. And I discovered that massive disparity, which in the Arab world at that time, I think we were more advanced in terms of women in engineering. And even throughout my career later, you know, at Mercedes-Benz, at the Boston Consulting Group, and I spent, I think, 17 years of my adult life in and out of Germany and Austria, I've been in massively male-dominated, often actually the only woman in the room.
1: So you're very used to that, both in your studies and the business world, but you did have a very long and impressive corporate career. Can you talk to us about some of the barriers you faced? And I'd be interested in your reflections because you've worked in a number of countries, a number of environments. Do you feel that there's a difference in gendered attitudes from one country to another when you compare and contrast your various experiences?
0: I think I do. I mean, not wanting to talk Germany in a bad way, because it's a country I've learned so much from. I love the language. And I think most of my own kind of even mindfulness and reflective attitude and this kind of type of self-awareness and so was very much influenced there. And the idea of innovation and kind of perfectionism Mm. in my work is probably I'm very German. But it was a country where kind of there was this traditional role model very strongly still in the nineties, you know, and in the two thousands where women stayed home and every time on a business dinner, people would ask me, Where are your daughters? Like they say, Okay, I have a daughter at the beginning and then two and they were like, Oh, where are your kids? And I was like, I didn't know what to answer. At some point I was like to say, Oh, I think they're like with the homeless person on the street or something. Like, I don't know, like I sold them to some gang or yeah, they have a father, you know, or, you know, I had <laughs> They're know. with their father, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, kind of those questions all the time, or I remember also being pregnant and going for a big aviation farm in Germany, and I went kind of to the C-suite to present kind of a pitch, and I was, I think, like eight months pregnant or so, and they said, oh, the pitch of this company was the best, but we're not taking them because CEO is pregnant. And I was like, that's not a sickness, you know, like I'm not going to die tomorrow, hopefully. So actually, it was almost daily, to be honest, you know, all these comments. And I don't think they were malicious. Probably sometimes people like said, oh, we just were curious, you know, to understand more. But when you get like the five same questions every business dinner, it kind of gets boring. Interestingly, countries like China, I did find. At least like I felt sometimes women had more space, maybe kind of that communist background. And even Eastern Germany actually had more kind of childcare and you could kind of participate more. Definitely the Nordic country, I had a big project in Sweden where you could see much more of that. But even the US, I mean, at least on the high level when Mercedes and Chrysler merged, I was part of the post-merger integration team. I think in the US there were more women leaders in the business world and it didn't feel so strange.
1: And did you feel that, you know, if there were more women business leaders, for example, in the US, was there a role modelling effect for you seeing more women? Did you have more of a sense that women make it here than perhaps in some other environments?
0: Yeah, definitely. I remember like my first American boss, she was an African-American woman and she I mean, she told me something that I really thought. She was like, Amel, if you want to have a career and children, you have to outsource everything that is not taking care of your children in quality. You know, like, and don't save money. Even if you spend your whole salary on childcare and someone to do your taxes and a cleaner and whatever. She was very strong about that and left an impression with me. Seeing her as a minority woman as well, because I think that played a role in my life as well, being not just a woman, but a Muslim Arab woman. And a mainly white Christian you know, environment, did give me strength.
1: It's sort of ironic to hear those stories about Germany, given the long-term leadership of <laughs> Chancellor Merkel. It's not the image that many people would have of the country, but the nuance about the difference in East Germany helps explain some of that, doesn't it? Because she was from mm. East Germany.
0: And I do think that in the last, I would say, probably 10, 15 years, things changed really a lot.
1: And how would you contrast the UK, where you live now?
0: When I arrived here, I think at the school where my girls went, they were like working women and there were women who were at home. And I felt there was less judgment maybe as in main Europe about the choices you make. So I did feel like there was more respect for whatever choice you make. And I did get a lot of support from women who were staying home, let's say, when I couldn't pick my girls or things like that. So I don't know, maybe that school environment that was very supportive. I mean, in politics it's, I think, average, no? 30% or so are MPs, women, so it's not massively more. But I haven't really spent much time in the business world here, so I couldn't really say if it's, if it's different or not. I mean, when I arrived, I felt it was more open to minorities because, I don't know, you go onto the border control and you have a Sikh person, you have a Muslim person wearing a scarf, etc., being, you know, the border control person. So it felt kind of quite diverse. But at some times, I left Germany actually to be in a more diverse country. I seem to have made the wrong route because when I left, you know, Germany opened the border for all the Syrian refugees and Germany is now a much more multicultural country. And here, you know, Brexit was voted. So I feel like, oh, man, maybe I made the route, you know, kind of at the wrong timing.
1: (laughs) Just goes to show how all those events shape lives. Now, talking about events and how they shape lives, I'm going to take you to 2013 when you received the phone call of a lifetime When the new Tunisian Prime Minister, who was building his cabinet and government, rang asking if you wanted to join him to help build the first democracy in the Arab world, that must have been a real crossroads moment. What was it like to receive a phone call like that? And how difficult a decision was it for you to leave a very successful business career which was taking you all around the world and to dive into the world of politics?
0: It was surprising. It was kind of a surreal moment. He also didn't give me much time. He gave me two hours. And I was, I don't know what where my strength came from. In that call, I decided like to challenge him quite a lot, you know, and and ask him tough questions. And I thought like, I want to make sure he can take me as I am, you know, like, and he really kind of answered very thoughtfully and, and wasn't at all Shaken or wasn't at all impressed by me, kind of pushing quite hard back in terms of his values and what he really wants to achieve. And then I hang up the phone, and I think it, I just didn't remember the day because that day we had a branding agency actually from my company who was presenting the results of kind of six months of work for us to rebrand the company and doing like a new strategic move. So it was really very interesting. Move. So then I, I went home, drove home, talked with my husband at the time, and then called my dad, called, you know, two or three other friends, and everyone said, don't do it. You know, you have to understand this. So 2013, we had two assassinations in Tunisia, political assassinations, which is like so untypical for our country. Egypt just fell back from, you know, the Arab Spring democratic experience backed into a military dictatorship. So that was all shaky. And, you know, Tunisia was the only hope at that time that could potentially survive. You know, you, Libya was kind of ready, falling apart. Syria, yeah, everyone said don't do it, but I just felt it in my body. I was like, oh, my God, this is... I wanted to give back, you know. I've profited from the edu- an amazing state education in Tunisia. even had a, a part scholarship from the Tunisian government when I studied abroad, and I just felt if if everyone says no... And I know a few people who said no. Actually, I called two people who kind of been asked as well and said, no, then this is not going to happen. And so I called back and I said, yes. But at that moment, I didn't really know what I was saying yes to. I mean, he did say, he's like, I promise you mainly pain. So, and he kept his word. <laughs> mainly pain.
1: <laughs> and, and were those advising you advising you to say no because they were concerned about your physical safety? Was that the main thing no, going and, through their minds?
0: Maybe, but mostly also about that it's not going to work, you know, that we will not succeed in, in really making like free presidential and parliament election. We will not succeed in finalizing the Constitution and kind of making that transition happen. And they felt like, oh, my God, you have this amazing career and you're going into like not to really war zone, but kind of in a very ambiguous place with much more probability of failure than success. Do we really want to do that right now?
1: But you did say yes, and you went on to be the first woman to hold that position as Minister of Tourism and one of the very few women ministers ever in Tunisia. Can you talk to us about what that time was like in your life? I mean, you were obviously under the spotlight in your own nation, but really the government you were a part of was under a global spotlight because everybody was watching to see whether the Arab Spring could Mm -hmm. generate a democracy.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it was a whirlwind and probably the most amazing time in my life and the most rewarding in terms of if I compare the impact I had being a business leader, the impact I have now, you know, being part of the UN as, you know, leading a fund in development. And that time, I would say probably the highest impact I had was as a cabinet minister in a government. It's just the decision you make and, and the policies you drive just impact millions of people. And it's so rewarding if if you can do something to change that. So, for young women, I say, if you want to impact, run for office. <laughs> so that's amazing. But it was, yeah, I was like 24-7 under media scrutiny. I became very famous in a way. There was like even this word, carbulmania. I had overnight like hundreds of thousands of mainly young people following me on social media and supporting the work I've done. And so it was crazy, you know. But I think for me, it must be like you sail in a very stormy weather you don't learn sailing so you just use whatever capabilities you have and for me it was a moment where like 6 a.m to midnight every day and I knew that I just had to be me and so in a way by being really just me and people love that because I was very atypical politician I was just very direct and didn't use any kind of convoluted language told people the reality of things and good and bad. And so it was very new, kind of a completely different image of what a politician is. Plus, I mean, I had tourism, which is 12% of Tunisia's GDP and one of the biggest employer, 400,000 jobs in the country. And so I was very, very much under scrutiny. But yeah, it was really amazing time, but tough time as well.
1: And were you able to... Even as you were living through that 24-7 pressure, were you able to think about being a woman leader or what your leadership might mean for women in the very policies you were delivering or the role modelling that you were showing? Was that on your mind or you just sort of got in and did it and it's only in the years since you've been perhaps able to look back and reflect on those things?
0: I think at the beginning, I saw the negative side of it. For example, I remember we had a parliamentary conversation at 3 a.m. And the next morning, I was in the president's palace at like 7 a.m. or something. And then the newspaper image was me kind of front page and my shoes not really polished and my hair not really well done. And they commented on that. And I was like what the hell? You know, like I was under 3 a.m. in Parliament, you know, and just had like three hours to go home, sleep and change and be here. And so there was a lot of comment on my dressing, obviously. I mean, like you're right, in your book about women leadership, the hair <laughs> and all these things. But then I decided to wear more traditional clothes and that actually came across really well. So modernize. So I used that actually. So I were able to use these things to push other things that were important for me like handicraft and supporting that kind of design I think I underestimated completely the role modeling piece it came more towards the end I would walk in the street and and you know girls would come and I mean it was like test something really surreal because they would sometimes like touch me just touch me you know and I was like oh my god like I'm not Jesus like I'm just a human being you know but many would come and say, you know, because we've been how, seen how strong you've been through all the challenges. Like some people said, oh, I opened my restaurant. You know, I never dared to do it before. Or another woman said, oh, I just started a PhD in physics because I saw that you can be strong and you can do this. And so I completely underestimated that. And actually, since the year then, it came more and more. And until today, I mean, it's almost 10 years Like when I'm in Tunisia, people come and say, you were for me the role model why I embarked on this. And so it's it's very touching. It's very moving.
1: Absolutely. What about the perspective from family life? I mean, by the time all of this Mm. was happening, you've referred to your daughters earlier. Can you talk to us about the you know, struggle, the juggle of work mm-hmm. and family life. You've said the pressures on you were such that you were really only able to spend time with your children sort of, you know, every few weeks mm-hmm. literally, but you felt under a lot of pressure to be the wife, the mother. How did you, you know, handle all of that?
0: I mean, I'm not sure this would be encouraging what I say to others. I, I do think like I almost paused my mothership for two years. I mean, I have to be very grateful to their father who who took most of the care, to be honest, that time. I saw them mostly every second weekend. We had actually reflected to bring them to Tunisia and we looked at, you know, English-speaking schools because at that time we were already in London. But then the Minister of Interior was not very keen on it because the security they would have needed would have been so massive. And it's not because Tunisia was an unsafe country. It's just because I was such a public person. I was very outspoken for minority rights And so kind of attracted, obviously, certain people who were not pro that. And even for me, I had so many bodyguards. Like, my security was so strong. I really, literally, 24-7, sometimes, even if I was in a hotel room, they would spend the whole night in front of the door. So we felt that wouldn't be really a good environment for the girls. And so I, yeah, saw them every second weekend and tried to be present. But to be honest, I wasn't really present mentally. I just couldn't do both. But again, that's maybe a very special time in history. And, you know, when I went also through a lot of social media shitstorms, if I can use that language, I also felt when my daughters went to Tunisia, it affected them much more. I mean, my daughter once wake up and she's like, oh, I had this nightmare last night. I saw you on the floor and people coming and stabbing into you repeatedly. And I really tried to protect them. They didn't have social media. They didn't have any of this. But they still kind of sense that energy sometimes when things went Really bad, or yeah, I was once 13 hours in a non confidence vote in parliament, which we actually won. So I don't know how I could have done it, to be honest. Parallel.
1: But I think the upside of that story, in many ways, is you know, you went through this really intense time, your girls were in London, you were only able to come back and see them every couple of weekends. But your relationship with your girls. I know your girls and I've uh, had the delight of being in your family home and your relationship with your girls is beautiful and strong. So it yeah, just it's shows that you can do that and still end up with this incredible bond with your children.
0: Oh, definitely. Honestly, like those were special years, but before I travelled also for business or since then, my daughter just made me a surprise from her birthday and she had a video camera and she's 18 now and she was like, oh mom, you're my biggest supporter, you're my best friend, you're an amazing flatmate and so things like that really moved me because I think it's not about obviously if you're 20 years gone of their lives that probably played in front but I think this relationship like any other relationship can maybe profit also sometimes for times of closeness and times of distance and kind of being able to balance between these two.
1: What drew you to the practice of mindfulness? This is something that is very important to you in your life now. You're studying it. You'll be uh, teaching it. How do you see that for your own life? But how particularly do you see the interconnection between mindfulness and leadership?
0: So I actually started in 1996, I think, based on a personal crisis. And I had a friend who said, yeah, it's good to do psychotherapy, but why don't you try and go on this meditation course? So I went in and I was quite quickly hooked. And it's been really a lifesaver for me in terms of being able to be present. I think as a leader, as a mother, as a friend, as in many roles in my life, I think being present in the moment, like now we are having this conversation, to be here, and to kind of use my body as anchor to be here in this moment and not to be thinking about something in the future or past. That's what mindfulness practice is about. Once and secondly, is also about responding differently. We are all so often on autopilot in our lives. We are triggered. We take decisions based on biases, etc. And being able to really use the breath, use the body. Take some time and then respond differently. With the Viktor Frankl kind of saying when he says like between stimulus and response there is a space and Viktor Frankl was the survivor of the Holocaust, and in that space we can choose our response and our in our response lies our growth and freedom, and that's actually what mindfulness is about.
1: Do you see any
0: gender dimension
1: to mindfulness, or is it the same experience for everyone?
0: I mean, in the courses and the retreat I go to, there are many, many more women than men, which is worrying, actually. (laughs) So there is, I think, at least an anecdotal tendency. I'm sure if we looked at statistics, we probably will find also more women practicing mindfulness. Since I left government, I've also kind of spent more time. I run kind of as a hobby workshop for women. It's called Fighting Dragons and Monsters, which is about inner and outer dragons and monsters. And part of it has also strong mindfulness And so in in those workshops, we talk not about men and women, we talk about the feminine and masculine. And the idea is that each one of us, being a man or a woman, we have a feminine and masculine side to different percentages, maybe. And the feminine is obviously that communal, but it's also the side that is maybe kind of mindful that is earthbound, that is nature bound, and maybe the pre-patriarchy side of all of us. And, And, you know, the masculine side is the more the driven, the action oriented, but also that maybe went crazy and destroyed the earth in the way we wanted to achieve it. And so that, but each one of us has those two sides, and then we need to integrate both of them to be successful. And women, maybe give them some more permission to be in connection with that feminine side. But I hope that more and more men also connected to their feminine side, which is about mindfulness and about, you know, the earth and about our planet. Let's hope we can change that.
1: (laughs) And now you're leading the Education Outcomes Fund, which uses results-based financing and an impact bond style approach and its back office supported by, hosted by UNICEF. So you now work sort of broadly in the UN system. Now, many listeners would have had no exposure uh, to this kind of model, so they're probably thinking to themselves, "Mm, hmm, results-based financing, that makes a bit of sense, but impact bonds, what on earth is that? So in very simple terms, can you talk us through how you're working and maybe give us an insight into the kind of programs and change that the Education Outcomes Fund is supporting?
0: Yeah, I mean, I can tell you why I said yes to this. And I mean, this is something, you know, today, I mean, I mean, it was before COVID, 53% of children in low and middle income countries could not read a sentence for meaning at the end of primary school. Today is 70%. So we have a massive, which I think is the biggest silent pandemic in our world, which is on learning and education. And if you look at youth employment, which is part of what we also deal with, There is a recent World Bank study that says two-thirds of all skilled programs have absolutely no impact on employment. And I just come back from a mission in Tunisia, funny enough. So this is the first time I'm actually back in Tunisia for work, which is really, really interesting, where together with the Swiss government and the Tunisian government, we're looking at launching a fund, actually an outcomes fund for youth employment. Over the last years, like just an aid money, like $500 million have been spent and the impact is very low. And even the government's money that is spent is spent on training young people, you know, and giving them skills training. But how many of these are employed is a big question mark. And actually, so what we do to make it very simple is Basically, instead of paying for activities like teacher salaries or someone going through a training or, you know, we just pay for when a girls move from primary to secondary and can read a sentence for meaning. Or we move, we pay from a young person who's trained, placed in employment and still employed after a year with, let's say, three times minimum wage. So we pay actually for the final results. And it sounds actually common sense. It's absolutely not common practice. Governments all over the world have budgets, and if you don't spend the budget by the end of the year, you may not get it back next year. And so you are incentivized basically to get money out of the door and not really on better outcomes for citizens. So that's what, we, what we're what we doing. And so more concretely, we're launching now actually the two biggest outcomes funds in development in the world, in Sierra Leone and Ghana, where we are focusing on learning outcomes in Ghana, also focus with out-of-school children. But so that's what we do. And then... Because you pay for outcomes, you put the whole system on its head, which is not used to, and that's why you need a lot of financial engineering. So this is my engineering background that comes with finances, and you call it impact bond, but, you know, it it sounds more mysterious than it is.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm sure everybody would wish you well in that incredibly important work. I'm going to come now to the closing questions of the podcast. I always ask my guests to respond to a fact And the fact I have for you combines really your love of education, but also the insights you have into mindfulness and as a result of that, into mental health issues. According to the World Health Organization, one in every seven children in primary school and one in every four in secondary school have mental health issues. A meta-analysis of over 70 studies showed school-aged children who practised mindfulness experienced less depression and anxiety, had better social skills and academic results than those who did not. What do you make of those very intriguing statistics?
0: I mean, the first one is massively saddening, and I'm personally on the receiving end of it. I I don't know we have the numbers for COVID, but I'm sure that kind of increased it. I've seen two daughters, two teenagers being in front of their iPads for seven months in a closed room. And, you know, knowing that teenagers, especially, and children define themselves by mirroring with other people, even if they hate the other people, you know, kind of what isolation does. I think we will see the repercussion massively in the next years and decades. So that's kind of the one, maybe empty half of the glass. And obviously, the mindfulness statistic is maybe a, a full part of the glass. So I know that Wellcome Trust, for example, and other organisations have been supporting mindfulness programmes You know, you know developed like the research evidence-based programmes for young children and young people. And so that's definitely, I hope, a subject that will become subject in all schools in the world. What's the
1: worst misogyny you've ever experienced?
0: Oh my God. <laughs> Out of the list of the million. I know it sounds very untypical now, but it's, when I was in government, I went to Germany on a state visit, so with the Prime Minister and the Minister of Foreign Affairs. And I still remember that scene where so like we had big teams obviously on both sides, but there was like a lunch with Angela Merkel and two of her you know advisors, and just the three of us, so very intimate. And so there was an the elevator where we should go for, to go to that lunch, and everyone else went to, I guess another room for lunch. And so there was a young woman, and she stopped me from entering the elevator assuming that I was not part of the lunch party, you know? And then someone came and kind of corrected her. And so I've, I know it's like a very small incident, but it shows like, okay, she was German. She was actually, the chancellor was the woman. She assumed, maybe because I'm from Arab country, maybe because I'm a woman, maybe because I looked younger, that I couldn't be the cabinet minister that is invited for lunch. So kind of in that millisecond decision of not letting me into the elevator, I felt like so many misogyny topics, you know, came all together in that small moment.
1: It's a very telling story. Now, if you had all the power in the world Mm. just for a moment, (laughs) what's the one thing you would change for women?
0: Oh, I would say that women believe in themselves, like feel their inner power and don't let the inner dragon of I'm not good enough power their lives and that we are enough. We are enough. We are more than enough. We are amazing. We have amazing power. And we don't need others to, you know, empower us. We are already powerful.
1: <laughs> Virginia Woolf says, "'Once conform, once do what other people do because they do it, "'and a lethargy steals over all the finer nerves and faculties of the soul. "'She becomes all outer show and inward emptiness, "'dull, callous and indifferent.'" A male says.
0: Oh my god, she's right. <laughs> <laughs> and I think maybe I think many women are so scared of not being liked and loved. And so they do a lot of compromise. And I did some of those too. But I can say now with almost 50, maybe looking back, it's not so scary because yeah, give up on the being liked and loved by everyone. Find your three, four, five women or male friends who love you, who you trust, who will be kind of your supporters and uh, kick everyone else's ass. <laughs> <laughs> what a fantastic <laughs> note to end on. Thank you. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the institutes, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Rebecca Shepard and Connie Blafari with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash giwl and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at GIWLKings. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us next time.